0: Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded, with a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.
1: Before we begin, a warning that some listeners might find what you're about to hear distressing. Last time on The Messiah and His Kittens.
0: It was like being
2: invited to the circus, and who says no?
3: Welcome. Excuse me. How are you? I was losing my old friends and my social support from the outside world. It's actually about how to enslave, especially young women, and young men who are open to idealizing any idea. Other people have described it as a sex cult, is that right?
0: No, that's just because they're jealous.
2: He married me in 1988, I was 16. It was a traumatic event that. That I- said, I shall die. She's explaining to me
1: how, as a teenager, the Turkish cult leader Adnan Oktay took her as one of his wives.
2: Around that time, everybody was getting married with each other. And there were a lot of girls. They wanted to get married to him, but lucky me, I was the chosen one.
1: How long were you married to Adnan Oktay for?
2: I was married till I was 18 sexual abuse started right after i married him i never even had a boyfriend i was never been kissed or anything like that i was thinking this is wrong this is wrong like why would a 32 year old person be interested in a 16 year old i cannot imagine
1: You're listening to The Messiah and His Kittens, a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Louise Callahan, the Middle East correspondent for The Sunday Times. In this podcast series, I'm investigating what lay beneath the brash, gaudy exterior of Turkey's most powerful cult. I'll try to understand more through those that were involved.
0: There is only one purpose in life and it's love.
3: This turned into one of his propaganda machines. Why?
4: Is Louise trustable? Young women can now walk freely in shopping malls. That's because God of me. God
3: will reveal Mr Adnan Oktar and my friends are innocent. Everyone is ready in the world right now to believe anything.
1: And now in jail, does Adnan Oktar still have any influence? Last episode, I spoke to Adnan Oktar, and he told me that he thought a secretive cabal called the British Deep State were trying to control the world. I also met a former kitten—that's what the women in his cult were called. She explained how Oktar had offered a kind of liberal, secular Islam, but one that involved scantily clad women dancing on his TV programs. Today, I go back to the 80s and track Adnan Oktar's rise. This is part
2: two. Nice girls from good families. I don't want to get into like details of the bedroom, but it was disgusting. You can tell how traumatised I am. About I can. That. And I was 16 years old and yeah. I could see in my flashbacks his face and the ceiling of his bedroom. Seda Eshildar
1: is talking to me from her home in Canada, where she's lived since leaving Turkey in the mid-90s. She's in her late 40s and very beautiful dark hair, striking green eyes and a ski-jump nose. She's waived her right to anonymity to speak to me about the sexual assault she experienced as a teenager. This PTSD, it's, it's
2: a bitch. <laughs> I hope you would never develop anything yeah. or anything in your life, but it, oh, it's such a huge trauma.
1: Seda keeps laughing as we talk and explains that it's a coping mechanism.
2: After 34 years, a lot of impact of this in my life. I'm almost 50 years old. I'm laughing at this, but it is not funny.
1: Adnan Oktar was born in 1956 in Ankara, Turkey's capital. It's a sprawling city on the Anatolian plain, with endless grey and yellow apartment buildings. Oktar grew up in a secular household. According to some of his former followers, his childhood was extremely troubled, He was abused by his father, but had a close relationship with his mother. As a young man, he studied the works of Islamic scholars. And in 1979, he moved to Istanbul to go to university. His mother went with him, and they settled in a house near the Bosphorus. Now in his 20s, he began getting involved in religious activism, mixing together traditional Islamic beliefs with pseudoscientific ideas. I
2: read about this person, Adnan Oktar. There was a magazine. Siddharth first came across Oktar, who was gaining a reputation as a
1: religious free thinker, when as a young girl in 1985, she picked up a copy of a well-respected magazine called Nocta. The headline read,
5: Adnan Oktar's private
1: school followers.
2: I did not think much of it. What
1: did it say about his belief?
2: That he was uh, more of a radical uh, believer and he was following Quran, and he was after mm, a new world order, basically. (laughs) In the 80s, Oktar
1: was talking about this new type of Islam, one that could be embraced by modern people and would fit into a modern world. In Turkey, this was a very unusual idea. It was a secular country where religious people were often derided, particularly by the elite, as being backward. So you can see how for a curious, idealistic teenager like Seda... Of course, you want to be part of that change, right?
2: Oktai's promise to remake religion into something desirable was appealing. I was a politicised kid. Once you see that as a package, that's an easy way out, right? That's what religion gives people.
1: Seda grew up in a middle-class family in Istanbul with her parents and two older sisters
2: in what she calls a secular household. 99% of Turkey's population is Muslim. My father was religious, but my mom was quite liberal. We were not required to wear hijab or anything. That's what I mean by secular. It means that religion doesn't rule your whole life.
1: When she was 15, Seda, now in secondary school, was hanging out with a group
2: of girls. We were four very good friends. We were Thieves (laughs) for girls and one of us, she met young guy, a friend, (laughs) that was another thing, it is just a word of mouth, it wasn't like, come join our cult and we'll offer you the future, it wasn't advertised, anything like that. So that boy told my friend, it's the big secret, teenagers, they want to be part of something exciting. There's the, this guy and he knows lots of secrets in the world. And uh, yeah, that's how it started.
1: From the beginning, Oktar believed there were dark forces trying to control the world. He started off peddling racist conspiracy theories targeting Jewish people and Freemasons and denying evolution. Adnan Oktar was big on Islamic creationism and was waging a one-man campaign against fossils, claiming that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was made up. By the late noughties, he had developed a fascination with what he called the British Deep State, something I asked him about in part one, though he didn't give me any great clarity on it. In essence, he believes that there is an evil cabal within the British establishment that is trying to control the world. I think it stems from the idea, which is quite widely held in Turkey, that the British ruling class schemed to bring down the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century because they thought it was so strong it threatened their own empire. By 1986, Oktar, now a semi-household name, was arrested on charges of insulting Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Although he was never formally charged.
4: Milliyet newspaper,
0: 4th of June, 1986. Adnan Oktar was arrested after claims that he spoke out against secularism and praised Sharia. Oktar's speeches have been claimed
1: to promote Sharia. After staying in custody for 1 day, he was released by the prosecutor. 6 months later, he was arrested again. This time he spent 10 months in a psychiatric institution. It wouldn't be the last time the authorities would try to take
2: him down. Meanwhile, the young women who believed in him were being abused. He convinced me to get my nose job done as a religious person. That was a very big no-no. God created this ugly nose. There's a reason I have to live with it. And he said, no, 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 no. Just get your nose done, get your nose done. Of course, he did not pay for it. My family did. (laughs) It's easy for him to say. And another thing, he did not let us get general anesthetics. So I did it with local anesthetics. It was horrible. (laughs) I I can still remember the hammer knocks. (laughs) And the surgeon was saying that, why do you insist on doing this? Just local anesthetics, can you believe that?
1: You remember your nose breaking under a hammer?
2: Yeah, I, I was counting how many times they were hitting the hammer and the chisel to my nose and the surgeon and the assistant, they were holding my head and It was all uh, bruised. Wow. Yeah, that was the level of my devotion.
1: Was there anyone that you felt you could talk to about this abuse while it was happening?
2: No, we were told not to speak about anything to anyone. Once you get into a cult... First, they love you, they tell you you're special, you're part of that group, and they isolate you. It is like a toxic relationship. And my relationship with Adnan Oktar was a secret within the cult. Seda might have been married to Oktar, but theirs was nothing like a normal relationship. And maybe there were other young girls who got married to him, but... We were not allowed to talk among ourselves either. Everything was a secret. It is like secret within a secret. It's like a matryoshka. A matryoshka or a Russian doll.
1: By the early 90s, Seda was unhappy and alarmed by some of Oktar's behaviour. But it would take a humanitarian crisis to make her see what was really happening. ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings.
0: Good evening, we begin with overseas news tonight. It appears that the violent tactics of the Yugoslav army... Have the in
1: 1991, the breakup of Yugoslavia led to wars in the region. At the time, a lot of
2: refugees from Bosnia were coming to Turkey. I wanted to collect some second-hand clothes and blankets and duvets and comforters to keep them safe and warm. And it was winter. And what he was saying that, OK, gather those and then we can sell them in the second-hand flea market. I said, no. No, no, (laughs) this is wrong. (laughs) And he said it in front of people. And I was like, what the, what's going on? How can people say, okay? I was looking around and am I the only one who's thinking this is wrong? That's what cult does to you. You always doubt yourself.
1: Then in May, 1994, Seda finally found the courage to leave. Now 22, she was studying urban planning at university. I
2: returned home and my parents, they were quite upset. They didn't know what was happen- happening with me. I had never told her parents that she was part of the cult. One day, she just left. Apparently, cult members went to my faculty of architecture and they were calling my home phone number. Back then, we didn't have cell phones, luckily. And anyway, so that that's how I... She never told her mother and father about the sexual abuse she
1: suffered. Till this day, they don't know. They don't need to know. And two years after leaving the
2: cult, in 1996, age 24, she left Turkey. I said, there's nothing left for me here. I don't want to be reminded of my past. She eventually settled in Ontario. I love Canada. I found freedom here. Talking to
1: Siddha made me think about how isolating someone and making them believe they have no one to talk to can be such an effective form of control. She didn't live with the cult, she'd stayed at home throughout this whole ordeal. So what was stopping her from leaving or speaking to her parents and sisters about what was happening? How did Adnan Oktar have such a grip on her?
5: My name's Alexandra Stain and I'm a specialist in the study of the social psychology of Cultic and totalitarian
1: groups. Dr. Stein is a visiting research fellow at London South Bank University. I'm talking to her on a video call, she in North London, me in Istanbul. She's a neat looking woman in her 60s, with short grey hair and a straightforward manner. I wanted to get a sense from her of how ordinary people can be drawn into joining cults. She would know. She was once part of one. My first book
5: was about my own experience in the US of uh, 10 years in a political cult as a kind of intelligent, rather feisty, feminist young woman had become subject to the whims of this group and this leader.
1: In a really general sense, what is a
5: cult? How do you define one? The general public, when they hear the word cult, pretty much understands that this is a group you know, led by a charismatic bully type figure. But my particular definition has five points, and the first one is the leadership, and that's that the leader has these two qualities, charisma and authoritarianism. They also cut people off from each other in interesting ways within the group because you have to just be the cult person when you're in the group. You can't be yourself. You can only communicate with others in the group in cult speak, and you can't share any doubts or questions So the structure is very isolating. That's the second point. The third point is that cults represent the whole range of belief systems, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, left, right. It's not about what the belief system claims to be about. It's really the structure of the belief system, which says everything the leader says is right. Our belief system is the only one, so it's this totalistic um, ideology. The fourth point is this process of brainwashing or coercive control is another word for it, which is fundamentally a process of isolating people, engulfing them in your system that is supposedly the benevolent good place, and then keeping them at high levels of stress or threat or fear. And that causes a trauma bond, which creates a lot of the problems that we see in people's ability to leave and to think their way out of of the system. Um, So all of those four points leads to the fifth point, which is the leader can then control followers and get them, deploy them, get them to do what he or she wants them to do, which may be against the follower's own survival interest. So that's a long version of my definition. But they're basically, you know, highly, they're closed, controlled, highly controlled groups led by a charismatic and authoritarian leader.
1: Have you heard of this cult that we are doing this podcast about? It's run by a man called Adnan Okta. Have you come across it before?
5: I looked it up when you contacted me and I went, oh, that's that guy. Because I had seen one of the TV things.
1: A lot of the women in Adnan Oktar's cult seem to be highly intelligent, highly educated, often come from quite well-off families. Is this common that people like this would be targeted? And how is it possible that people who would appear from the outside to be not particularly vulnerable to this kind of thing can be lured into joining a group like this?
5: I think that speaks to the lack of understanding by the general public and therefore a stereotype of an economically deprived, uneducated, stupid person who wants to find some group that will control them and tell them what to do. However, that's not what the data show. Cults want productive people. They don't want drains on the system. They want people who are going to add value, shall we say. And education and wealth just
1: don't protect you. It can be difficult sometimes to wrap your head around why people might stay in them despite being abused or mistreated. What what do you think is the most important factor there? The isolation. It's very difficult to do
5: things entirely on one's own. We're social animals. We seek other trusted persons, especially children with their caregivers for protection. And that protection has helped the species survive. In a cult, you don't have that. Your supposed protection is the leader. So whenever you're stressed and frightened, you don't have anyone that you can trust to turn to, and you're in this chronically stressed state. So what happens is you end up turning back to the group because that's the only thing that's available to you. And it's exactly the same as what we see in domestic abuse where controlling, coercive behaviours are seen. It's really no different. It's just that one's happening in a group
1: structure and one's happening in a one-on-one relationship. The way Dr. Stein was talking about cults made me think that, in a way, the ideology of any given cult didn't matter that much. It seemed more to be a tool for isolation and control, much like what Seda had experienced. I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters.
2: Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded, with a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.
1: In 1999, Adnan Oktar was arrested again. Milliet newspaper, 19th of November. Adnan Oktar was arrested with eight of his followers. The house where they had been staying resembled a weapons depot. He was charged with extortion and forming an organisation with an intent to commit crimes. But eventually, the case collapsed. For the next decade, his notoriety grew. In 2011, he launched A9 TV, his TV channel, which beamed into households across Turkey. Oktar would sit around in flashy suits, discussing Islamic theology, surrounded by handsome men and scantily clad women, who would occasionally break into dance. Sort of like a Turkish Hugh Hefner, with a few Quranic verses thrown in.
3: He started to realise, if he involves women in this, a lot of people watch it, and he's going to be popular.
1: That's Jelan Özgül a former kitten who we met in part one of the series. She says that the dancing girls, the studio and the glitz were a cover for Oktar's real intentions.
3: This turned into one of his propaganda machines that he used for a lot of reasons. First, he was distracting people with this TV. You know, doing something like this, uh, he was just having light conversations on TV and jokes.
1: But all the time, he was committing serious crimes, including sexual abuse and fraud. I should add that, unlike Seda, Jaylan says she was never sexually abused during her time in the cult.
3: So people would look at him and they were thinking, including the government, what harm can come from this person? You know, they're just having fun. So just let them be.
1: So one thing that really strikes me when I look at
3: those videos, it's the
1: way that the people in the cult talk about him. It seems to be this like constant competition about who can say the most flattering thing.
3: He tells you to say this and this and this every single time before the camera starts recording. If you don't say what he wants, he will stop the program and he will restart a hundred times. He won't get tired until you do it. And, like, you live there, you have nowhere else to go at the moment, so you just do it. The setup of the TV studio is pretty
1: strange. You see him sitting on a stage, with rows of kittens in front of him. Among them, they're often good-looking Turkish young men, really sharply dressed, just like the ones who were there the day I went to interview him. These are his lions, the male members of the cult. I knew that many of them worked on recruiting young women to the group, and I wanted to find out more. My Turkish producer Beril had managed to make contact with one of Oktar's former henchmen, a lion called Özkan Mamati. He'd spent years being Oktar's money guy, siphoning off vast sums of cash and setting up fake companies across the world to launder money. In 2018, he turned against the cult and went to the police. He agreed to meet us. So now me and my producer, Daryl are in the car on the way to go and meet Özkan Mamati, who is a lion. He's a lion. He's, he's an lion. ex-lion. Former lion. Yeah.
2: What, what are you expecting? I'm expecting a good-looking guy. Uh, probably he has good manners and he's a gentleman.
1: We turned up in the neighbourhood where Özkan was living. We can't say where for security reasons. This doesn't look like Turkey Man, this looks like Florida. There's like palm trees, these huge fancy houses. Peaceful. It's like a gated community. Everyone just looks very well off. There's a lot of yoga pants. I'm really surprised. Yeah, me I'd too. I had no idea this place existed.
5: This is my first time here, and I'm the well, This shocks me, Beryl. It's yeah. so your vibe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're a fancy lady. I'm really surprised. Look <laughs> at that. We,
0: our
1: we got out the car. And we walked into a large, rather sterile luxury flat with very bright lights, white walls, and clunky, old fashioned furniture. Ozkan was there with a woman, also a former member of the cult. She chats to Beryl and me and brings us some tea. Oh, wow, thank you so much. Özkan <laughs> <laughs> is 38, but he looked older than I expected, far from the stereotype of Oktar's handsome young acolytes. He was tall, well-dressed, with very white teeth and excellent manners. But there was a restless, manic energy about him. So, um, can you first of all tell me a bit about, about why you all live here? I speak pretty good Turkish, but better translated in case I miss something.
4: This is a high security compound.
1: Here, his words are being spoken by an actor.
4: We're under constant harassment from the organisation and therefore we have to lead a careful life.
1: So why did you join? What was it about the cult that was attractive to you and your family?
4: This organisation knows how things work. They're very good at manipulating people. The tactics change depending on who they're dealing with. Think of them like a tailor. They change their approach, so it fits you. We were just kids growing up in the local neighbourhood. We were approached by university graduates, doctors and engineers. You know, high-level people. It pulls you into the organisation. When you first become a member, you don't really understand what's going on. Then, after maybe two years... Slowly, they get you involved in their crimes and in their sins. I did not leave the organisation to save myself. I did it to destroy the organisation. I wrote a letter to Adnan Okta on the day I left. I told him, even if you bury me, I will come back from the grave and destroy your empire.
1: I hadn't specifically asked him about why he left, but Özkan was keen to tell me. He wanted to destroy the cult, in his words. But he now lives in hiding. Because Özkan took part in the police operation against Doktor and turned witness for the prosecution during the trial, he was granted immunity. He had helped take the cult down, but now he was afraid they would come for him. I asked him about his crimes.
3: We committed
4: financial crimes. All the male members of this organization's committed financial crimes, sexual crimes and other crimes against people. We were ordered to by Adnan Okta. You have to commit these crimes, otherwise you can't stay in the organisation. They handcuff you with these crimes, because if you leave, then you have to live with the threat of it all catching up with you. There is a significant group of female members who were involved in crimes, but women were also victims.
1: Why did you do it?
4: Because that's what he ordered us to do. Once you're part of that world and in the organisation, you could kill someone, rape someone, steal. It's all down to Adnan Okta's orders. On the morning of the police raid, an officer from Special Operations Forces was shot in his chest by one of the members of the cult. He survived because he was wearing a protective vest. Adnan Okta said, shoot him. And so he shot him.
1: At the height of Oktar's power, he and the cult were linked to a number of top government officials, including the current Minister of Family and Social Affairs, the former Minister of Work and Social Security and the former Minister of Education. Prominent politicians went to his parties. Some ruling party members were known to be in contact with him. Towards the end of our interview, Özcan said something that genuinely shocked me. Around 2017, he said, there had been a concerted effort by the cult to destroy the reputation of the then-British ambassador to Turkey, Richard Moore by trolling him online, claiming he was an agent of the British deep state. Moore is now the head of MI6, so clearly they didn't damage his career much. But I don't think he, or anyone else, had any idea of the scale and effort that went into this campaign. Uskan told me that they had 15 to 20 people working five hours a day attacking Richard Moore online, what Uskan called a social media lynching. To me, this showed two things. The first, how the cult would obsessively fixate on people who they saw as their enemies and throw their energy into trying to destroy their lives. Second, how inflated their own sense of self-importance was. They had genuinely convinced themselves that they could take down a British ambassador. Do you feel guilty about the things that you did?
4: Well, yeah. Of course I did, but not anymore. Right now, I'm very happy because I've paid my dues. It was a heavy feeling when I first left the organisation. But now, you know, I've more than paid my debt. So instead of guilt, I feel happy and proud of myself.
1: Throughout the interview, there was someone else there. A guy wearing a tracksuit, sitting on a sofa on the other side of the room. He would occasionally interject.
0: (laughs) If you want to talk,
1: that's absolutely fine, but please come over here because otherwise... But he seemed kind of shy. He too was a former lion. His name was Ur Shahin. He had one job. To groom and entrap women. Next time on The Messiah and His Kittens
4: this setup, it is really difficult for girls to get out of it. Everything is planned and perfected through a system of trial and error.
1: This other lion tells me how he lured hundreds of women into the cult.
4: It could have happened to you as well, no matter how smart you are.
1: And was I right to take these men at their word?
4: Beryl, hi. Is Louise trustable?
1: You've been listening to The Messiah and His Kittens with me, Louise Callahan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe. The producer in Turkey is Berileski. The executive producer is Asya Fuchs. With original music and sound design by Tom Birchall. And the actor voicing Özkan Mamati was Stefan Booth. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast... There are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description.
0: And tuck in to spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded, with a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.